So, we've got a lot of kids up here. I used to be a kid, uh, and when I was around 12 years old, I think, my memory's a little fuzzy for back then, I did know this, I loved playing baseball. And when I was 12 years old, sixth grade, um, I played on our Pony League team in the Gig Harbor area, um, and it was sponsored by this local construction supply store, Rosen Supply, so we got this, these cool uniforms, you know, like they, they look sharp and everything, but then we had a crappy name, it was Rosen Supply, so anyway, um, I, it was a team of fairly average kids, we were okay, uh, I played second base, it's my favorite spot, uh, but we had this one kid. Billy Jack Kirk, and I'm not even making that up, like that was his real name, Billy Jack Kirk, and uh, this kid was like a head and shoulders above the rest of us. In sixth grade, he already had like peach fuzz mustache and real muscles, like muscle tone and everything. It was, it was like, Billy Jack Kirk, this guy is like a man-child. Um, looking back of it, I wonder if maybe he had skipped a few grades or like, or got held back a few grades more like. Uh, anyway, when ja Billy Jack Kirk was playing on our team, every time he was on the field, we won like almost every game. You didn't even have to hit well. You just like got on base. This one kid, he's a little heavier. Uh, anyway, he would sometimes like stick his body in the way and get hit because nobody pitched very fast in, when you're 12. Uh, and, and as long as we got on base, Billy Jack would just like literally jack the ball or he would like spray it wherever he wanted to. He, he was just that good. And he would always score the runs. And then if in fielding, like, he would play shortstop. I remember this one time, the ball got past the center fielder, and Billy Jack was so fast, he would, like, backed up the center fielder and made sure the guy that was already on first base didn't even make it home. So, I mean, he was this amazing baseball player. Whenever he was on the field with us, we won the game. It was inevitable. If Billy Jack was for you, the other teams could not stand against you. Now this evening we're going to be continuing on in our journey in the book of 1 Samuel. And I've titled this series, The Rise of the King. At the beginning of the book, we saw how Israel was a complete mess. Like they were relegated to tribal disputes and idolatry and constantly oppressed by other countries or they were the oppressor of other countries or themselves. Now if you've been participating in the Immersed Bible Project and you don't have PTSD from those readings... How did you get through that? They're, they're crazy. Like that, that slog of Joshua and Judges is it, it, horrible, right? What a mess. And after each horrible story that get, the point is they get worse and worse through the book of Judges, there's this one familiar line from the narrator. And there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And how did that work out? No. You're right. So the book of Samuel, uh, we, we, see, we see God now taking the helm at work in every story. First, he raises up this prophet Samuel, who's going to start pointing the people toward God, and then he's going to raise up a king who would lead his people in faithfulness and defend them from their enemies. So at first we meet this guy, King Saul, who starts off as this timid but able leader. Uh, but early into his reign, we see that his true character is revealed. And his actions show us that he's unable to rule with humility and courage. And so the Lord anoints another young man to be king, and that man is, kids, who's that man? Kill Goliath, who's that dude? David, yes. Your namesake, my friend. Okay, there you go. So David serves, um, served King Saul as a healer and as a musician in his court. He served Israel when he defeated Goliath, this great threat to their nation. Um, and this evening we're going to be working through 1 Samuel chapter 18, which takes place sometime after David defeated Goliath. 
It's like we're going to see that, 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 that Yahweh is with David wherever he turns. It's like his, his very own Billy Jack Kirk, except that God doesn't have a peach fuzz mustache. Is that pretty much that analogy just breaks down right there, but you know what I'm saying. I'd have a hook. Okay, so let's pray because get Billy Jack out of our minds and then uh, get the word into us. Lord, thank you so much for your word and as strange and weird as it is, especially in these ancient Near Eastern type scriptures, uh, we trust that your Holy Spirit will guide us and will speak to us and will challenge us if need be and pour out grace on us where we desperately need that um, and help us to see you in these passages. In Jesus' name, amen. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna work through the text and because like most of the Hebrew scriptures, it's just kind of weird, right? So I'll just take it in little chunks and we'll work through it and then we'll see what God has to say. So here's the beginning of chapter 18. Now, it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day, speaking of David, and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped off his robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out whenever Saul sent him, and he prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of all Saul's servants. That's the first five verses. All right, so the story picks up right after the David and Goliath story. We don't know how much time has passed because in these types of narratives, they compress time. And I'm going to say this probably every week. You've heard it before. But when we're looking at at these Hebrew narratives uh, in 1 Samuel, among other places, remember that the author is not really interested in giving us the chronology. He's interested in giving us the theology. He's, He's less interested in telling us the order of how things happen. And he's more interested in telling us uh, the reason thing happen, things happened and the major players behind how these things happened. But what we learn here from these five verses is crucial. It's important. David has been successful in defeating Israel's enemy and he gave glory to God for this victory against Goliath. Saul and his general Abner had been inquiring about David and his family and where he's from and all of this stuff. And at the end of that conversation, we learn that Saul's son and his heir to the throne, Jonathan, loved David. Now, what I'm going to be pointing out is the difference between Saul's reaction to David and Jonathan's reaction to David. So let's look at Saul. Verse 2 says that Saul took him took David and didn't let him return to his father's house, okay? So from a 21st century perspective, what's the first thing you think of? Like kidnapping, right? Like you just held him there or something like that, weird. Uh, but but that, that's not what's going on. Um, the point is that Saul was accustomed to whenever he found an able-bodied warrior to adding him into his army. And if you look at 1 Samuel 14, 52, we'll read these words. Whenever Saul saw Saul saw a mighty man or a brave man, he took him into his service. Okay, so Saul is enlisting David into his army. In verse 5 of chapter 18, it implies that Saul sent David out with his troops, and in so doing, David brought glory to Saul, right? When David wins a battle in Saul's army, Saul 
is a good king. He's defeating Israel's enemies, right? So he gives glory to Saul and gives glory to Israel and to Israel's God through these accomplishments. And he's also winning now on the side the admiration and respect of all the people who fought with him and with all the citizens of Israel, okay? Now Saul sees David as a major asset to his army. Like, I don't know, he's like some special Navy SEAL guy or, or whatever. Like, this, this, he gets things done. And so he responds by using David, by adding him to his forces. Now, let's consider how Saul's son, Jonathan, responds to David. Particularly, we're going to look at two descriptive terms and two actions, okay? So first, the descriptions. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved David as himself, okay? Those are two descriptions, the soul being knit together with David and loving David as himself, these are terms of deep loyalty. The soul being knit together is a term of friendship and covenant loyalty. We know this because of the Hebrew sentence structure. The phrase about the souls being knit together and Jonathan loving David are basically the same and used in parallel, they intensify each other. So the term for love here, for example, is the same exact Hebrew word where it says uh, in chapter 16 that Saul loved David. Remember when David was playing the harp and soothing Saul, and it said Saul loved David. It's the same word. Or in Genesis, when God loved Jacob but hated Esau. That's weird. We got into that in the Genesis series. But, uh, <laughs> but it's the same Hebrew word there. And, and the word basically means that Jonathan was committed to David in a covenantal, political type of, of, of way, plus a deep, deep and enduring friendship. And I'm going to have a sermon in a couple weeks on, on spiritual friendship. These two guys knock it out of the park. Okay, but right now we're looking at this, this deep commitment to one another. And maybe you notice the detail that Jonathan loved David as himself. He's pretty much living out the Shema, uh, the great commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I believe that Jonathan is beginning to see that Yahweh is with David. And so to pledge his loyalty, his love to David, is a way of honoring and loving Yahweh. Now, two actions. Jonathan made a covenant with David. A covenant is a political agreement. Here we have the, the son of King Saul, the heir apparent to the throne of Israel, and he's made a covenant with David. Who's not part of that family at all. The nature of this covenant is made clear in the second action, and that is that Jonathan gave David his royal robe and his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. Okay. Now, weird details, okay. but you have to appreciate in the ancient world that people's clothing described who they are and what they were about and what they came from. For example, Jonathan's robe likely had scarlet or purple in it. It would be treasonous for a non-royal to wear those colors in this day and age. We, we really don't have that. Like, I don't know, we, we see social influencers or we see a movie star wear a certain kind of outfit and we just like can go to the mall and buy pretty much that outfit if you wanted to uh, and could afford it. Like, we can wear whatever we want. I mean, the closest thing it might come to would be like... Uh, you could dress up like a, a police officer or a, a military service member for Halloween, maybe, but if you wore that stuff like every day, 
that would be weird. Um, borderline, that that's a social taboo for sure, and, and maybe impersonating like an officer. So there's some things that we just, we, we get, but we don't really get how these colors and how these outfits worked in the ancient world. But more importantly, as we learned in the David and Goliath story, when someone in a position of power gives you their clothing, it's symbolic as if they're transferring their position or their honor to you. Okay, so Saul gives David his armor uh, when he's about ready to fight Goliath. And in that setting, it was practical. It was like, you're going to go out, you're the shepherd boy, you're going to go fight this giant, you're going to need stuff, right? Uh, but it was symbolic, it was foreshadowing what was actually going to happen, that Saul would lose his kingship and David would get it. But in this instance, Jonathan is making a clear gesture of loyalty. He's basically saying this, I see that God is with you. In the political world, I may be heir to the throne, but if God is with you, then I step aside. I will lay down my rights so that God's anointed can thrive. Remember, we always interpret the Bible with the Bible first, okay? Does that sound like anyone else we know in the New Testament? John the Baptist? I must decrease so that he may increase. You know, when Jesus came on the scene to be baptized, John the Baptist had the disciples. He was the guy everyone was following. He was the hot deal in town. But when Jesus came and started his ministry, John had to step out of the way and pointed everyone to the Messiah. That's discipleship, friends. Constant figuring out of how we get out of the way because it's not about us, it's about the Lord. All right, picking up now in verse six, I'm gonna read another section. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him and he said, They've ascribed David ten thousands, but to me they only ascribed thousands. I'm sure it sounded like that. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand, as usual. And a spear was in Saul's hand. It's kind of weird. Okay. And he hurled the spear, for he thought, I'll, I'll pin David to the wall, as you do, right? Um, so, so, so David escaped from his presence twice. Now, Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul removed, from him, uh, removed David from his presence and appointed him as commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here's my older daughter, Merab. I give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. 
But David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at that time when Mer- uh, at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Meholahite, for a wife. Yeah, did you get track all that? Okay. So, so now we've seen, we've seen Saul and Jonathan, how they reacted to David up front. Jonathan sees that the Lord is with David, and he embraces the situation. That's what survivors do. You see, oh, the world isn't quite how I thought it was. I'm going to adapt to this new situation. He begins to lay down his own agenda for the agenda of God, which seems to be that God is going to work through this kid, David. So I'm going to get on board with that. Now Saul, on the other hand, has not seen so much a movement from God, but David as a resource to supply his own army and his own reputation. And as you might expect, this is where the wheels begin to come off for Saul. So one example is when David is coming back from this victory, uh, fighting the Philistines, right? And as, now, as Saul comes into town, the the singing is for Saul. If you look at the text, so Saul's coming into town, and the women begin singing, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands, right? And at face value, from an English reader's perspective, it seems as if the women might be making fun of Saul or something like that, being derogatory, like Saul did his thousands, and David is so much better, he did his ten thousands, right? But that's actually not the case. Oftentimes in Hebrew poetry, like I said previously, the lines are parallel and they intensify each other, not contradict each other. So the meaning of the song isn't to point out David's superiority, but to say that Saul and his champion David have defeated armies in great numbers. Why then is Saul clearly angry about this line in the song? Well, he gets angry because the song is putting David on equal ground with Saul. It is giving David equal honor with Saul. And Saul is an insecure man, if you haven't noticed at this point in the story. He knows from the prophet Samuel in chapter 15 that God has rejected him as king. He hasn't quite caught on yet that his replacement might be this young David, but he's become easily offended and extremely paranoid. And so again, we read about this evil spirit coming from God to torment Saul. And I'll refer you to my sermon from 1 Samuel 16 for like a more in-depth look of what that evil spirit kind of stuff is. It's like a whole sermon in itself. Um, But let me just summarize, okay? This is not an evil spirit of God, because God's not evil. So it's an evil spirit from God. And since God is sovereign over all things in the world, especially in the ancient worldview, Saying that an evil spirit came from God in ancient Hebrew literature didn't mean that God sent an evil spirit on a mission to like bug Saul or something. It meant that an evil spirit entered Saul on God's watch. And so if it happened at all, it must mean that God sent it because he's sovereign over all things. That's just how people saw the world. The most important takeaway for us is the reminder that if we reject God and if we reject his spirit, we aren't just remaining neutral, like saying, no thanks, I'll just make up my own mind. Every single human being is wired to worship something or someone. It's just the way it is. If not the sovereign God and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, then we open ourselves up to other things. So we think we have freedom to think whatever we want or to do whatever we want or to spend our money on what we want or to experience whatever we want. But if we aren't careful, we'll find that our choices, our godless choices, will become our masters, that, that we'll be enslaved to the things that we love outside of God. 
So in this story, Saul has rejected God, and he's rejected God's agent, David. Without the blessing of God, and by going against God's will, Saul is living in a perpetual like, state of, of paranoia and fear and foolishness, right? And, my friends, this is how you get to the place in your life where one day your friend who fights all your battles for you and plays the harp when you're depressed, you just think it might be a good idea to pin him against the wall with a spear. That's crazy. Maybe you remember in the Gospel of Luke, right, when the angry crowd pushed Jesus to the edge of a cliff and wanted to throw him over, and then it just said, yeah, Jesus just passed through the crowd. His time wasn't yet. God was with him. And so in this story, you know, you've got Saul hucking the spear at David at point-blank range, and it just says, eh, he turned about twice, walked away. God is clearly with David at this point. Uh, he's not going to, uh, to be thwarted just yet. And so Saul becomes even more angry. And this time he sends David into battle so the Philistines can kill him. But then his plan backfires because the Lord is with David and David is super successful and he comes back and everybody loves David and Saul's like, ah! Now they're singing more songs about him and everybody's like, David this and David that and when this guy just die? <laughs> right. All right. And the final like, insult is he offers this daughter and then does a bait and switch and says, now I'm going to give her this other dude. All right, so let's bring it home here in 18, 20 through 30. Now Michal, Saul's daughter, different daughter, loved David. And when they told Saul, this thing was agreeable to him. And Saul thought, well, I'll give her to him that she may become a snare to him. What a good dad. <laughs> and that the, the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David, for a second time, you may be my son-in-law today. Like, yay, what, what war did I win? Um, then uh, Saul commanded his, his servants, notice he doesn't do the job himself, um, speak to David secretly, saying, behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David, but David said, is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? Since I'm a poor man and lightly esteemed, the servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry. <laughs> Let's dispense with any money. All I want is a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. All right. I lost my place because that's so weird. <laughs> now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines when his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the days had expired, apparently there was a time limit on when these hundred things were due, right? David rose up and went, and he and his own men, and he struck down 200 men among the Philistines, and David brought there 200 foreskins. I guess he's an overachiever. Um, and, and the full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, for a wife, and when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. And then the commander of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely 
than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. Yeah, it just gets weirder, right? Saul finds out that one of his others, other daughters, Michal, loves David, that she's committed to him, so Saul thinks, this is great, I'll use my daughter uh, to be a snare to David. She'll keep tabs on him for me, I'm sure, because he, he's so delusional. Of course, her loyalty will really be to dad, right? And David, for his part, says, is it trivial in your sight to just become the king's son-in-law, like when I'm a poor man and from a nothing family? Okay, now there's a triple meaning in this statement of David's. Is it a trivial thing to become the king's son-in-law a poor man from a nothing family, lightly esteemed. Here's the first meeting. David, at this stage in his life, is truly a humble guy. And this is a trait that we're gonna see repeated time and time again, just David's humility, at least for a while, right? We all know he goes off a cliff later in his life, but let's relive the glory years right here, okay? Second, do you remember in the David and Goliath story when Saul says, whoever kills Goliath, these three things are gonna happen, you're going to get to marry one of my daughters. You will become wealthy, and your family will be exempt from my taxes. Okay? Yeah, well, none of that's happened yet, according to this story, right? So David's words here are actually kind of cunning. Is it a trivial thing to let the king's daughter marry a poor man? Well, well, no, but David should have already been made rich by this king, and he should have already had a, one of his daughter's hand in marriage, according to Saul's word. So what we see here is David's righteousness and Saul as more of a kind of a dirtbag, right? Like he has not followed through on his commitment. So that's the second thing. And then the third meaning is what is Saul doing at, at the moment David is just like a warrior in his army. Sometimes he plays harp for him, but now all of a sudden he's, he's making him uh, a member of the royal family through marriage. Right. So sure, Saul thinks David is going to die collecting these hundred foreskins, um, which is gross, right? Uh, but he should have known by now that David is not acting alone. He is God's agent, and so he brings back an even grosser amount of 200. Uh, just keep moving on. Kids don't draw that. Uh, so <laughs> Saul's motives may have been to harm David, but Yahweh is using every one of Saul's evil decisions to bless David and to further his plans. Okay? So the chapter ends with these stark contrasts. Jonathan is for David. Saul is against him. And all of this matters because of verse 28 in 1 Samuel chapter 18. The Lord was with David. The Lord, Yahweh, the living God, was with David. You know, to be with David in that, that Hebrew word, it does not mean to be with in proximity, like to just stand next to him. The Hebrew word here often is used to describe a people or a community. So another way of saying this is the Lord was in community with David, or the Lord drew near to David as one of his own. Or even more succinctly, the Lord was for David. Now there's a warning here as we come to the close of the chapter, as well as an opportunity. The warning is that we should see Saul, right? When Saul had been called by the king, or, or to be king by the Lord, he was nothing. I don't know if you remember that story when Saul was called to be king. Like, he was this humble, obedient son out looking for his father's lost donkeys. 
He's the sweetest guy. And then when he's supposed to be anointed king in public, he hides behind this cart with a bunch of luggage in it, and he's just cowering away. He's like the resistant. He's the, kind of the guy you're looking for. He's handsome. He's tall. He's able. But he's not too excited to take power. He's, he seemed like he's going to be a great king. But after a while, Saul got used to being God's man on the throne. He was all about that king life, yo. Right? After a while, Saul started acting like it was his kingdom and not God's kingdom. Like he was worthy to be king, forgetting that he had come from nothing and it was God alone who gave him honor. Now, we should take this warning to heart because there is not a breath of air that you and I are breathing right now or a beat of our hearts that we have earned or are entitled to. No matter what we have done or what we have accomplished in life, it is all due to God's grace and for God's glory. That's the point of our life. And that we live in a culture that tells us you and I are entitled, but we live in a creation that is always reminding us that we're completely dependent creatures. Um, I know there's a lot of athletes out there, um, and when you are on your game, you feel invincible, right? How many of you have done sports in your life and have had an injury? It's, it's horrible. It's horrible. It just, oh, it, it makes me crash so fast mentally when I have an injury and I can't do the things I like to do. And, and it just reminds me, I am dependent. I, I look out on this congregation and I know some of you have had struggle with serious health issues and some of you are facing some of those now. Some of you have lost friends and family due to health issues way too early. And, 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 and so nature and the world is this great equalizer and as strong and, and as entitled as we think we might be, however we dress ourselves up and make ourselves smell better and look better, like, like we, we're dependent creatures on so many things. One of these positions will serve us well, right? Entitlement or dependence on God. One of those two positions will serve us well. The other one will not end well. What is your honest posture toward life? Entitlement or dependence? Well, if you find yourself a twinge convicted, let me point us now to the opportunity. That was the warning in the text. But there's an opportunity in the text as well. As Christians, and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're here exploring Christianity, but when I, I preach as a Christian, and so when we read, when I read and preach through the Hebrew Scriptures, I believe, I do that, I do that. Every year we're in the Hebrew Scriptures in the fall because they're the Word of God, and they can speak for themselves. But as a believer in Christ, one of the lenses I am always reading these Scriptures through is the lens of Jesus, the rise of the king is ultimately not about David, but about the Messiah from the line of David, who is Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, the angel tells Joseph that Mary's son would be Emmanuel, God with us. God was with David in 1 Samuel 18, and that's amazing. But God with us, not just one man, but with us, that's history-altering news. The Apostle Paul reflected on this Emmanuel, this God with us thing in Romans chapter 8, which Corey read earlier. God with us, God for us, who can stand against us? Now that doesn't mean anything like 
we won't have troubles in the world or in life. I mean, just look at David. Like, this guy, you know, even before he morally falls off the wagon himself, like, he's living in caves. (laughs) He has to go live with the Philistines and, like, fight with them for a while. Like, we're gonna get to all those cool chapters later. Um, Saul is trying to kill him, almost kills him several times. Like, David's life is not easy. Uh, Let alone, you know, look at Jesus, the Son of God, right? His life was not easy, and and, and it ended on a cross, and of course, resurrection later. Uh, Peter and Paul, these amazing disciples of Jesus, had very difficult lives, but but life in general, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, is full of trouble. It's full of trouble. And the joy of Jesus being with us is twofold, and I'm going to end with these two points. One, our lives in Christ have meaning and purpose. Even our suffering, maybe even especially our suffering, God is with us. He promises to work with all of these things uh, for the good of those who love him, for the good of those called according to his purposes. It doesn't mean he causes all the crap that happens to us. It doesn't mean he likes it all. It means he can redeem it all and make it worth something. One of the biggest fears that human beings have had throughout history, like anthropologists can point to this, like the way that we write our literature, our mythology, all of these kind of things, this, this fear that emerges amongst human beings is whether or not we count for something when it's all said and done. Whether or not our lives matter, whether or not what appears to be senseless loss, abundant failure, or untimely illness or death has any way of being redeemed. God doesn't promise answers to the whys of life, but he does promise that all of it matters and that he's with us. The best alternatives have to offer are some form of escapism or straight-up nihilism or despair. Okay? But in Christ it says it all matters for something in God's plan. Second, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. I'll read it again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who, is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or nakedness or peril or sword? No, none of those things. Look at David. Saul tried to have him killed by putting him on the front lines numerous different times. But if you know the story, you know that David is going to do the same thing with a young man in his very own army named Uriah. And he does that because he wants to sleep with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And so even this David, this man that God is with, became an adulterer and a murderer and an abuser of power. We all have our stuff, our deep down stuff, which we think disqualifies us from the love of Jesus. And I'm here to tell you from the scriptures that Jesus won't reject the one whose heart is broken about their sin. He won't reject the one who comes to him in humility for help. If God is for us, 
No one can stand against us. Not sin or shame or struggles with depression or mental illness. Not our past abusers who have scarred us. Not our confusion about our sexual identity. Not our gender or the color of the skin we were born with. Not the mistakes we've made in the past. Not the mistakes we'll make in the future. Not our failures in school or work or sports or music or dance or any other human arena. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen to that, Lord. Amen to that litany of (laughs) amazingness. And let it be more than a pep talk or an amazing list of things that that hits us superficially. But I pray that this good news would go deep into our souls and set us free from sin and death and shame. And for those who are feeling in captivity to their own stuff, oh Lord, Would you shine your light of grace and a word of hope and bring new life where there's hopelessness and death? Amen.